You can be seated. This morning we reached the end of the book of Kings. We'll be reading just the last four verses from 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30. And though we reach the end of the book of Kings, we certainly by no means reach the end of the story that it tells, at least that it tells a part of. But even still, we conclude our time in the book of Kings with the final four verses, 27 to 30 of chapter 25. Before we read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, and even was on the page right before the song that we sung in the hymnal, we, we come before your word which illumines, which teaches, which is perfect. And we thank you for your word in all of its form, whether it be in the law or the prophets, the writings, the gospels, acts, the epistles, or revelation. We thank you for your word from in the beginning to lo, I am coming soon. We pray that as we come to the end of this portion of your word, you would not let its lesson pass us by, but instead you would plant in our hearts our great need for Christ, and that he is indeed the king. We pray in his name. Amen. Second Kings 25, starting in verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year evil Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. You know, as we've come through the book of Kings, we've really, we've really come through a significant portion of, of history, uh, uh, hundreds of years of history. We, we started our time in Kings all the way back when David was still alive. David was an old man, he was a cold man, and his sons were, were battling over who was going to sit on the throne. Solomon becomes king. We looked at Solomon and the, the temple he built and the palace he built and all of its splendor and all of its glory. And then we saw all of his foolishness as well in marrying the, the pagan women that he married, so many of them as well. And then the kingdom splits in two. We saw the drama of Elijah and Elisha, the great kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. We, we've seen so much in the book of Kings, but as we come to the end of the book, it seems as though we come to a, 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 a sort of car wreck, <clears throat> something that resembles a, a plane crash. It's a fiery, disastrous mess. Everything is exactly as it's not supposed to be. It seems as though the, the whole story of the Old Testament has, has crashed and burned and is ruined. The land promised to Abraham's children is empty of Abraham's children. The throne promised to David is empty of a son. In fact, there's not even a throne to sit on any longer. There's no country left. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, are out of their land and they're off in exile. Again, to carry the metaphor forward, when you come into chapter 25 of 2 Kings, it, it seems as though you come to a plane crash. 
When you come to the plane crash, you see that there's a man in the cockpit, but certainly he must be dead. It appears as though there is no hope. And such is the situation here in Kings. There's no king to pray. Seems to be there's no prophets, at least not described here. There's no palace, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices, there's no Passover. It seems as though it's all over. It seems as though, it appears as though there's no hope. But appearances can be deceiving, can't they? Just because a man appears to be dead doesn't mean that he's actually dead. I remember a time, perhaps I've shared this story before. If I have, I apologize. But it was a time at the church I served before this. There was a, a man who was, who was in the congregation. He served as a volunteer uh, member of the fire department. And they got called out to a plane crash. When you get called out to a plane crash, you don't expect very, very good scene. And so when they arrived at the plane crash, the plane is, is literally burning. It's on fire. And they see a man in the cockpit. And as you would expect at a plane crash, they assumed that he was dead. But he wasn't dead. He was alive. They went and they pried the cockpit open and they pulled the man out and he lived. And so too it seems here. It seems as though when we come to the end of Kings, it seems as though there is no hope, but there is hope. And Moses had spoken of this hope long, long, long ago. Moses, you recall, in, in Deuteronomy, promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If the people would worship him, if the people would worship God, then they would be blessed. If they would forsake him and worship idols, then they would be cursed. And at the end of all those blessings and curses, in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3, Moses said this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to, the land, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even when you're off in exile, even when you're in a foreign land, if you will turn, and when you turn, then I will gather you together. I will restore your fortunes. Even when you are in exile, there is still hope. Even in the darkest, grimmest moments of our lives, there is still hope in the Lord. There's always, there's always the opportunity, as Paul says, of a but God. We see so often in the Scripture that the words of Psalm 121, verse 1 are true. Where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? I, I lift my eyes. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And we've seen this before. We've seen it before in the scriptures. We've seen it in our own lives. We, we see the wisdom of, of prying our eyes off of our own misery. We see the wisdom of, of prying our eyes away from the, the hopelessness of our own situation, of, of taking our eyes away from dependence upon even one another and lifting our eyes up to the hills to see the God the Savior. Of looking to the hills, looking to the horizon, looking to where God will come to bring hope, 
where God will come to bring healing, where God will come to restore fortunes, where God will come to bring salvation. We have seen in the Scripture in our lives how what the psalmist says is true, that God is our strength and our shield, or as the song says, that He is our helper, defender, redeemer, and friend. We see this in the scriptures. You go back to hopeless situations, seemingly hopeless situations. You, you consider Joseph, Joseph, great Joseph, who finds himself in an Egyptian prison on trumped-up charges of attempted adultery in Pharaoh's prison. You see it in Israel. Israel enslaved in Egypt, the most powerful country on the face of the planet. And you see it as well, even closer, even closer in time to where we're at. You, you see it in the time of, of wicked so-called Queen Athaliah, who becomes queen. And the first thing she does is she begins to kill all of David's male descendants. So there will be no king in his line. And all these things seem hopeless, but they were not hopeless. God sent the baker and the cupbearer into the prison as well, that they might have dreams which he can interpret. And Joseph was not only released from prison, but he was placed second in command of the whole country. And the Lord struck Egypt with the plagues and released his people from their slavery. The Lord used Jehoshaphat to hide little Joash in the temple. Just one son left until he was old enough to become king himself. Oftentimes things appear to be hopeless but appearances can be deceiving. And God is the same yesterday and today. And so if God can save from seemingly hopeless things yesterday, then He can save from seemingly hopeless things today. And so it was reasonable for the Jews in exile, it was reasonable for them to have hope. And that's what we find that's what we find here. Even as the temple back home in Jerusalem is, is, in, is in ashes and the whole city has been burned and the wall has been knocked down, even as the people are strangers in a foreign land, yet they still have hope. And hope is what we find in these verses. And as we go back and read them again, I want you to listen for where you might see, where you might find and hear hope in the story. We'll go back to verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. In the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. And we've really jumped a, a long ways forward as we come into verse 27. We, we've jumped nearly, nearly 30 years forward from where the, the last portion that we finished with ended. And as we jump into this time, these, these 37 years later in, in Jehoiachin's life, we, we see a much different person. He was 18 years old when he became king and was carted off into exile. Now he's in his, in his early to mid-50s. But even through these 37 years of exile, presumably imprisoned in one capacity or another, he has survived. No small feat in and of itself. And now a new king becomes 
and he's freed. He's freed. He's alive and well. And not only then is he freed, but he is honored. He is placed in a, a greater position than all the other subject kings. All the royalty that this new king uh, uh, relates to, all the royalty that this new king interacts with, of all of them, Jehoiachin is the greatest. And not only is he exalted as Joseph had been when he was released from prison, not only is he honored, but he is provided for. That he and his family eat royal food all the rest of their days. This sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Right? You go from being in prison for 37 years, being ripped off your throne, and carted off to a foreign land, not to mention by a king who gouged the eyes out of your successor, and now you're released, you're exalted, and you're provided for. It seems too good to be true, but it isn't. In fact, Jehoiachin's food allowances were recorded on Babylonian tablets, and we have those tablets. We essentially have Jehoiachin's receipts. What an incredible turn from prison to exaltation. And then consider the hope in this. If Jehoiachin is still alive, then David's family is still alive. And if Jehoiachin will be fed and his family will be fed, then his line will endure for one more generation. And as long as David's line is alive and enduring, there is still hope that God's promise to David of an eternal king will still be kept. In fact, if you look, there's a lot of hope in just a couple words that we see here. Jehoiachin is referred to Jehoiachin is referred to as the king of Judah. Now, there's a lot of irony there, isn't there? How can Jehoiachin be king? He doesn't have a throne. He doesn't have a palace. He doesn't have a people. He doesn't have a nation. He doesn't have any authority. Jehoiachin has nothing that you would think a king would have. How can you call a man without a subject how can you call a man with no authority who just got out of prison, how can you call that kind of man king? He's not a king by the world's standards. He's not a king, but the Lord says he is a king. But he's not a king because of a palace or because of a throne or because of a people or a nation. He's not a king even because he's a good guy. He wasn't a good guy. Scripture says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoiachin is king. Even while he was in prison, he was king. Jehoiachin is king for one reason and one reason only, because God says that he was king. And he was king. And because he is king, there is hope. And the hope is only because of God's grace. Jehoiachin is still king, not because of anything in himself, but Jehoiachin is still king because God made a promise and he was going to keep his promise. As the, scripture, as, as the scripture says, David was going to have a king. And Ian Proven says that these words, this, these last verses of kings, hang tenaciously on God's promise to David. God gave his word and he made David a promise. And he kept his promise, and he always keeps his word. 
And so that's the hope. You come to the end of Kings and that's the hope, but the story ends there. The story ends. And it's really just a little bit of hope, isn't it? The people are still in Babylon. The author writes, and he's in Babylon. There's no king. There's no country. There's no palace. There's no temple. There's no throne. There's only hope. Only hope that one day the Lord will start a new exodus, bringing his people, not out of Egypt, but out of Babylon, and bringing them back to the land. But even still, even still, after all the carnage, after all the sin and all the rebellion, after all the bloodshed, after all of that, the book of Kings ends with hope. Another commentator said that the ending of Kings indicates that God protects his own and that this is not the end of the story. Verses 27 to 30 are just kind of a long way of writing to be continued. The story isn't over yet. And for hundreds of years, the story would not be over yet because the, the promise would still be a matter of hope. The people would return to, to Judah. They'd return to Jerusalem, yes, but there would be no king. They would build a temple, but it wouldn't be anything like Solomon's temple. They'd rebuild the wall, but the city would never be anything like Solomon's city. And so they lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years only, if we can say that, only on hope. There was no king until... There was no king until a child was born who had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, born to a virgin in the town of David, whose father would be Joseph, who was a son of David. There was no hope until the story continues as we come into Matthew's Gospel. And as we come into Matthew's Gospel, Matthew very intentionally picks up the story where it left off. He doesn't just begin with angels. He doesn't just begin with, with shepherds. He, he begins by recounting everything the Lord had done before. He goes all the way back to the, to the promise that God had made to Abraham, and he, he lists off a bunch of names, but it's more than just names. He lists off a bunch of names, and with each name comes just another chapter in God's faithfulness. And as he goes through these names, he, he moves us forward very quickly, very quickly to where God keeps his promise. So I want, you to, I want you to listen as we read through the very first words of Matthew's genealogy, Matthew's gospel in the genealogy, and just listen as we go through the story of the Bible. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. That brings us all the way from Genesis 12 to Samuel. And then you go into the next part. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's a gulp. Now you've come through the book, of, the book of Samuel, and now you move into the book of Kings. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. 
Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoiachin, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now we're at the end of Kings. But glory of glories, he doesn't stop there. But Matthew keeps going. Because the story keeps going. After the exile to Babylon, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Now you're into Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Do you see it? Do you see how all, all the Scripture, all the book of Kings, is the Lord kicking the ball forward one bit by bit, kicking the ball forward, kicking the ball forward, moving it forward, nearer to the goal, until finally, when you come to Matthew's Gospel, the goal has been reached. And the promise has been realized. And, and within, this, within this genealogy, there are two particularly important men. David and Jehoiachin. And how do we know they're particularly important? Because their names are not mentioned only once, but they're mentioned twice. And the reason that these men are important is because they are two extremely wonderful examples of God's relentless, undying commitment to save and rule His people by a king. A good king. A perfect king. An eternal king. And when you take it all together, it all makes sense. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of God. Born that night that we get to celebrate in just, a, just another week or so, we begin Advent. Born that night. Born that night was the king we have been looking for, a king more powerful than David, wiser, infinitely wiser than Solomon, more favored than Hezekiah, and more faithful than Josiah. Born that night is God's true king. Born that night is David's true son. Born that night is the eternal king who sits on an eternal throne. Born that night was the promised one, the anointed one, Christ the Messiah. Born that night was our Savior, our King, and our God. That night, in that manger, when Mary lays her child down, the quest for the king was complete. But he was, in a sense, and is, in a sense, gone, isn't he? He's king, yes. He's with us always by his spirit, yes. But he sits on heaven's throne, and we are residents of the earth. Peter refers to us in the first two verses of his first letter. He refers to us as elect exiles. 
He refers to us as elect exiles because we are exiles. We're exiles like the Jews were exiles. We're scattered. The church is not gathered together in one place, but we are scattered. We do not see a king on a throne except in the word. We do not have a common language, but we are strangers and foreigners in strange and foreign lands. Even our own land seems increasingly strange and foreign to the believer, does it not? We are like them, and we have a hope like them. Their hope was that God would keep his promise. Their hope was that God would send the son of David to rescue them and to once more be their king. And that's our hope. My favorite Advent song is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I love it for any, any number of reasons, but if you're going to understand the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you have to, you have to know the Old Testament. Because it's an Old Testament song. It, it's, it's a song of the Jewish people who are in exile. It's the song of, of awaiting people. It's the song of a people who are longing and longing and yearning and pleading with God to send the Son of David to save them. Pleading for a king. Pleading for a nation. Pleading for a renewed hope. Pleading for the Son of God to sit on the throne of God. Isn't that our prayer? Isn't that our same longing for God to send His Son again? To send His Son to sit on David's throne forever? Isn't our pleading for God to bring His kingdom not in part as in the days of David and Solomon, but to bring His kingdom in its fullness? Isn't that what we want? We want to see the King on His throne. We don't want to see it just in our minds. We don't want to see it just in our souls. We want to see it with our eyes. We want to see Christ exalted. We want to be free. We want to be free from our own sinful nature. We want to be free from a sin-stained world. We want to be free from enemies and oppressions and culture wars. We want to be free from persecutions all over the world. We want to be free. We want to be a gathered nation. We want to be gathered around the throne of the great Lamb who was slain. We want to see Jesus. That's what they wanted. We're not so different from them. What they wanted is what we wanted, and their hope is our hope. And their hope was only in grace. What other hope did they have? They had blown it again and again and again and again and again and again. It, it, it becomes almost monotonous how terribly wicked they had become. Baal this and Baal that and Ashtoreth this and Ashtoreth that. Moloch this and Chemosh. All of it so, so wicked they had blown it. Their only hope in this foreign land was grace. And our only hope is grace. Paul says it perhaps nowhere more clearly than in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But Christ shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our hope hangs, as the song says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or again, as Paul says so plainly in his letter to the Ephesians, by grace we have been saved. In the, the book of Kings, in all of its inspired mastery and glory, shows us ourselves. And it is often a far more ugly picture than we would like to see. It shows us our, our natural inclinations to idolatry. It shows us that we are, again as the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It shows us our propensity to be foolish. It shows us shows us our desperate need of grace. But the same book of Kings in all of its inspired, masterful glory also shows us God. It shows us God's kindness, His justice, His patience, and His grace. And it is that grace that is our hope. I think one final quote from Ralph Davis, whom I perhaps think you have become quite familiar with, is in order here. He says, it is not your righteousness, but the Lord's stubbornness that brings redemption. It isn't that what we have seen. We have seen a stubborn God. We have seen a God who would not let even the most wicked of his people prevent him from keeping his promise. We have seen a God who stubbornly insisted generation after generation after generation insisted on sending his son to be his people's king. We saw a stubborn God. And that same stubborn God is our father. And he will send the great king, just one more time. Let's pray. Great God, you are stubborn, relentless, perfect, and glorious. And you are most patient. And you deal with us you deal with us patiently. You deal with us graciously. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, he was sent. What a mystery that the right time would be in the middle of, of the Roman Empire, that the right time would be on a, a night when there's no room in an inn. The, the right time would be to a, a young poor virgin, betrothed to be married. How, how could this be the right time? But you are wise and good. And in your mysterious providence, you have chosen us, Gentiles, strangers to the covenant, to be your people, to be subjects of the great King David's son. And you have called us.
You have called us to be a nation. You have called us to be your nation. And you have called us to be your people, living under an eternal king. And by your great grace, we get to be your eternal people. Amen.